Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Thank you, everyone, for coming today to the Spectators Brexit panel. Um, when we were organising our conference programme, uh, we had various sponsored events where you often have an exercise where you talk about what you agree should be the conversation points. And there was a moment where we just looked at the schedule and thought, let's have some fun. <laughs> and that's why we're in the smaller room. But we thought, let's have a debate about Brexit, because it's been, you know, a while. Um, so the question we're asking is, has Brexit failed? And of course, on a serious note, you know, we're about one year away from an election. Uh, it feels that there are parts of the Tory party and even the Tory government that don't particularly want to talk about it as much as they used to. Um, if you think about, for example, the recent Question Time Brexit special... Now, perhaps some of this was not wanting to, to take part in that programme, but there was no government representative making the case for Brexit or leave. Um, you have Keir Starmer talking about closer relations with the EU, though he gets a little bit scared if you talk for too long about it. Um, even, no, Ed Davey for now does not want to talk about Brexit. But there is a chance that we go into the next election where the Labour are talking about closer ties and the question falls to the Tories of, well, if you don't think that's a good idea, what have you got to show for it? So on that, I'd like to welcome our panel today. Uh, we have Matthew Elliott, former Vote Leave CEO, the official campaign. We have John Redwood, who needs no introduction, uh, though I did give you his name. And then we have Camilla Cavendish, um, FT columnist and former uh, David Cameron advisor. Uh, we have Charles Grant on the end, the director for the Centre for European Reform. And then we have Therese Villiers, uh, shadow sec former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And on that, I'm going to go to each panel member and just say, has Brexit failed? What do you think? Let's start with you, Matthew. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, preparing for this, I remembered some of the interviews that some politicians have done where they're asked to give the benefits of Brexit and what Brexit has achieved. There's a bit of a sort of coughing and spluttering, and they talk a little bit about the vaccine rollout and a bit about Ukraine, and then they sort of end there and talk about the things we can do uh, in addition to the other things we've done. So I started actually, actually doing a list of all the things we're actually able to do outside of the EU. And it comes into basically three buckets. So I think Brexit has succeeded. The first thing is, the first bucket is the things we've um, avoided uh, by leaving the EU. So, for example, all of the um, EU budget payments, which were some, was it 350 million a week? Was that the figure which was sort of floating around at the time in the referendum? Um, there's the, we don't have any liability for the um, EU COVID uh, recovery plan, which would have run into tens of billions to the UK taxpayer. We've avoided, this is the, the February 23 figure, uh, which is probably much higher now. Um, since leaving, we've avoided an extra 7,391 new EU laws and bits of red tape. So that's been a big plus from leaving the EU. And finally, we've ended uh, free movement of people and replaced it with a points-based system for immigration. So all of those things we've, in that first book, of things we've avoided by um, leaving the EU. But what have we done? What have we actually achieved with the new powers we've taken back, have, being outside the EU? 
uh, well, there's additional funding. Um, some of our customs tariffs used to go to the um, European Commission. They now come 100% to the UK government. That's worth about £3 billion a year. There's the, um, we've talked about COVID vaccines already. There are the free ports. Uh, I think it's eight free ports in England and two in Scotland. There are the Edinburgh reforms to financial services, which are worth about £100 billion um, a year. There's a little bit of tax reform. I think we could do a lot more on that, but there have been some alterations to uh, VAT on um, energy-saving products, for example. Um, UK fishing is now outside of the EU. Again, more to be done there, uh, but we've avoided certain things like um, uh, electrical pulse fishing, which is environmentally bad. Free trade agreements, Australia, New Zealand, CPTPP. Um, AUKUS, the deal with Australia for nuclear submarines. And... um, also, when it came to the Ukraine war, able to have our own sanctions regime. So there are various things we've done, not many, but there have been significant differences between what we could have done, what we have done, what we would have been able to do were we still inside the EU. And I'd say the third bucket, if I just have another 30 seconds, if you think about uh, Brexit and what we were campaigning for in 2016, if you remember the slogan famously was, take back control. And that goes to the heart of the fact that it was all about sovereignty and where... Uh, decision-making actually lies. And I actually say that in that period since 2016, um, there have been some ups and downs, and there have been some periods where there were tight votes in Parliament during all the meaningful votes and during the pierogi of Parliament. But I would actually say that Brexit has strengthened representative democracy in the UK, and Parliament as a whole is now stronger than it was before. So my three things. Great, thank you. Actually, at this point, now we are going to come to audience questions, but just briefly, that's just before we go to the other panellists. Has Brexit failed? Raise your hands if you think it has. Okay, a couple. And has Brexit been a great success? Raise your hands. Okay. So some say great success, a couple say failed. There's obviously some in between. And with that, um, can we go next to Camilla? Oh, my God, right. Well, Matthew has done a heroic job. This is like one of those university debates, isn't it? I mean, he has done a heroic job. I I really salute you, Matthew, in setting out the um, uh, very, very limited gains that it's possible to perhaps uh, for you to have argued, you know, so eloquently that we have made. Um, I I, I wasn't going to mention this, but given that you said Parliament has strengthened, I really have to question that one just just as as a, a sort of aside. What we've actually seen, unfortunately, is a Parliament which used emergency regulations during COVID to shut this country down with no parliamentary scrutiny, whatever, and that is increasing the amount of, you know, we are increasingly doing that, and we actually, I think, have a sort of elective dictatorship, which is not nothing whatever to do with the EU, but it's very, very unfortunate. So I really would advise you to leave that one off your list next time. Um, but let, let's just go into the, the, the serious ones you, you talked about. I guess what I worry about... And I was thinking about my beloved father who voted leave and um, has since passed away. But he voted leave for the right reasons. He voted leave because he believed in national sovereignty and he wanted to take back control. And I was trying to think, and he and I had this argument, obviously, because I was working for David Cameron and I was very concerned about the effect on the economy. And and we had the argument. Um, And I think he would probably say today that he does not feel we have taken back control in any significant way. And I mean, I shouldn't be putting words in his mouth, but I genuinely think he would feel that because I don't feel that as a country we've taken back very much control at all. Superficially, you can set that out. But what I fear is 
that we engineered this vote to leave at a time, a really terrible time in the world. When a world which is increasingly polarized, with China and America extremely powerful, and we, I think, and not everybody who voted to leave, by the way, I think actually voted to completely uh, leave the single market and customs union. That was never debated, right? But we have actually cut ourselves off to a large extent, created a great deal of friction with a market of 500 million people. And what I see happening in the businesses I talk to, particularly in people who work in the arts, honestly, kids who work at musicians, artists, people who work in culture, people who are trying to export, small businesses, what I hear all the time is that the frictions which were inevitable which were always going to be created because you have to fill in more customs forms, you have to fill in rules of origin forms. All of those frictions are beginning to mount up. And unfortunately, when we were in the EU, a lot of integrated supply chains developed across advanced manufacturing and a whole series of sectors that we could all talk about. We have now got ourselves into a position where many of our products are not entirely produced in the UK. We don't produce a whole car. We don't produce a whole plane. We are reliant on enormous numbers of components that whiz back and forth and are processed all sorts of different places. And it is now almost impossible to put that back together again. There is a big question to me about whether we continue to dynamically align with the EU, which is what most businesses meet I want to, want to do. They're not taking advantage of some great opportunity. They are desperately now trying to shadow the rules of the market we left in order to have access to that market. The carbon border adjustment that's going to come in in October is going to make that much, much worse. Our carbon trading systems are going to, have, going to align. So back to the issue of sort of control. We are locked into a situation where we will have to keep shadowing that biggest market. We will have to keep aligning with that biggest market if we want to keep even the smallest share. And I won't go into the numbers. I'm sure Charles Grant has all the numbers about the ABR forecasting. We would lose uh, four, we'd lose 4% of GDP in the medium term. Um, the free trade deals joining the CTPP is only going to get us to maybe 0.2%. You know, there is a gap. Personally, I never thought that Brexit could succeed but it has, in my view, definitely failed. Okay, so currently it seems to be one each. Um, let's go to John. Well, Remain told us that house prices would go down if we voted to leave, and they went up. Uh, they told us that unemployment would go up if we voted to leave, and it went down. They told us the GDP would fall if we voted to leave, and it went up. They have been wrong on all of their economic forecasts over the Brexit period. They were quite unequivocal. It was going to be the vote that actually did all that, but uh, it went the other way on the vote. And then they repeated it for after we actually left, because we got delayed by Romanians from leaving on time. And still, they were wrong, and I think they will continue to be wrong. Their 4% fall in GDP is now extended over several decades and is completely fictional. Uh, and they're relying on people not being around to check them out when we eventually get to their deadline because the deadline has to keep on going further into the future because they are never in tune with the right numbers. Because these are the people who work with the OBR to give us such appallingly bad, inaccurate numbers on what our tax revenues and deficit will be usually out by at least 100 billion a year. Uh, and they obviously got good lines into the Bank of England, who told us 
uh, from their independent, majestic approach that our inflation would be around 2%, and of course it went to 11%, and they weren't very good at forecasting inflation. Well, they didn't forecast a war in Ukraine, John. Well, no, but we had inflation at 6%, three times target, before Ukraine was invaded. It was a direct result of their irresponsible monetary policy, uh, where they did the same as the Fed and the ECB. Uh, but, of course, Japan and China uh, and Switzerland and others didn't do it, and they didn't end up with the same inflation. So Brexit did not fail in the way remains said. The British economy has done a little bit better than the French and German ones. It could do a lot better, and that is where we need to talk about how we use the Brexit freedoms, because we've had so much noise and resistance throughout from parts of the British establishment who don't want us to use any of the great Brexit freedoms. But the main reason it hasn't failed and cannot fail is that it was about taking back control. It wasn't about trade and trade agreements, although that's what Remain wanted it to be about. It was about can you make the decisions in your own country through a democratic process. We never said that all governments all the time would get it right. What we said was that they will either get it right or they get thrown out and replaced with people who do what you want. That is democracy. We weren't able to make our own laws when we were in the EU. We can now make our own laws. And if you don't like the laws we're making, you have an opportunity in election to choose some better ministers. Charles, would you like to follow that? Sure. Well, let me be a bit you more... You don't have to stand. I won't. Let me be a bit more down-to-earth and deal with some, a, bit of, a few facts and figures. Seven, seven brief points in three minutes. Productivity, according to the OBR, which I do respect, not, not, not always right, but it tries to be objective, productivity in the UK is about 4% lower than it otherwise be because of Brexit, because of the non-tariff barriers that are affecting trade. Trade itself is 15% lower. Imports and, impo imports and exports both 15% lower than they would otherwise be. As for growth, I think Camilla said 4%, but uh, the calculations we've done at the CER say 5.5%, smaller GDP than we'd otherwise have. Now, that, that matters, of course, for the government's fiscal, fiscal position and the revenues coming into the government. Uh, £40 billion a year less coming into the government every year because of Brexit, because of the smaller economy, people pay less tax. I'd like to spend more money on defence. I'd like to spend more money on HS2. I'd like to spend money on lots of things, schools and hospitals. But we, that we, 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 we were, we're strapped for cash now. We have £40 billion less every year than we'd otherwise have. Um, inflation is higher than it would otherwise be because of the, the, the controls at the border and the friction at the border. In today's news, we saw that uh, the government itself has said that when it imposes restrictions on imports coming into the UK, which have not been imposed yet, when, when they are regulated and, have, and checked at the, at the frontiers, that will cost, cost £330 million, pushing inflation up by 0.2%. Um, the CBAM has already been mentioned by Camilla. Camilla. The last point I make is labour shortages. Obviously, in, industries like hospitality and care are seriously hit by labour labor shortages. Um, I mean, essentially, there are three regulatory superpowers in the world, America, China, and Europe. Britain is not one of those powers. The, the rules are made by America, China, and Europe. When we were part of the EU, we had a big say in what happened in the EU. Financial services, for example, Britain was never outvoted ever, with one exception on financial services regulation. We, we wrote the rules, just like the French were never outvoted on agriculture, the Germans on the car industry. We were once outvoted on... on uh, Method. Mifid one. Mifid. Mifid, okay. But very, very, very rare event, very rare event indeed. We've lost the ability to shape the rules that, 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 that affect our economy. Um, last point, 
I think, I think Brexit could have worked economically if we'd gone for what some people sometimes erroneously call Singapore on Thames, because Singapore isn't a deregulated economy at all, but people think it is. If, they, if we'd gone for slashing social environmental rules, consumer right rules, work, workers' rights and so on, if we'd, if, we, if we'd cut taxes dramatically, and, you know, then, then probably Britain could have been in a kind of offshore Asian tiger, attracting a lot of investment away from the EU and could have done quite well economically. But it hasn't happened because the Tory party doesn't want to do that. Tory voters, British voters, the Tory party, most MPs do not want to have a slash-and-burn economy. They want to have high, fairly high, high, high degree of welfare, good social and environmental protections and so on. So the Singapore model doesn't work because of the way the British people think. So the only possible economic justification for Brexit isn't, isn't happening and um, the, the economy is a lot smaller than it would otherwise be and we're suffering from a, a less income coming into the government's coffers, which I hugely regret. Thank you. And now we'll go to Theresa finally and then do some questions and then some audience questions. Thank you. Well, the, the core benefit that Brexit has delivered is that we've restored democratic control over making our laws in this country and we can no longer be outvoted by people we didn't elect and can't remove. And we've restored our status as an independent self-governing democracy. I mean, of course, you know, just a few years past exit, there is far more progress that we need to make to capitalise on the opportunities provided by that status of independence. Um, and in particular, we have to resolve the issues related to Northern Ireland. But as you've heard, there have some been major benefits delivered already. Not having to pay our contribution to the EU, about 12 billion last time round, no contribution to the 806 billion post-COVID stimulus package, avoided 7,000 new EU laws and court decisions, faster approval and delivery of COVID vaccinations, 2,000 items of EU law reformed revoked or revoked, solvency two and pension reforms to release 100 billion of investment, free ports to help spread prosperity, VAT cut on energy saving materials, a bigger catch for UK fishing boats, and tougher protection for the marine environment, a new system of farm support to replace the CAP and protect the environment, lifting the EU ban on agritech, which could make our farmers more productive and reduce the need for pesticides, reverse the Vanuk judgment, which would have added £50 to everyone's car insurance bill, reformed HGV driver regulations to pack tackle post-COVID supply chain problems, reform of the clinical trials directive, to, to boost life sciences and get medicines and treatments to people more quickly, changing how lithium is classified to unlock investment in Europe's first large-scale lithium refinery on Teesside, reducing disproportionate reporting elements of the Working Time Directive, new procurement rules removing the requirement for audit accounts and insurance, new subsidy control regime allowing implementation of compliance schemes without burdensome and lengthy authorisation requirements from the Commission, 70 trade deals. And despite the, um, the trauma of the COVID epidemic, still nearly the lowest unemployment for half a century, we've been growing faster than France, Germany or Italy, and exports to the EU and the rest of the world have gone up since exit, not down. Um, now, just before we do the panel, we obviously did the hands in the air in terms of what you felt about Brexit. I suppose, uh, if you were comfortable, put your hand up if you did vote leave. Okay. And then if you voted, because we've heard all the reasons in terms of why it is a success or a failure. So who voted for sovereignty is their main reason? Okay. 
quite a big number. Immigration, okay, it's a much smaller number. Trade deals, okay, so, and then more money for the NHS. Uh, okay. Perhaps I was just as well. Uh, but I have to say, way more than 350 million has been. Um, NHS funding has increased by yeah. way more than it said on the bus. Yeah, the and look how successful that's been. Far more. And <laughs> um, I suppose, Camilla, if we take the. We didn't actually mean to sit you as an entity away from the. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm very clear where you sat, sat me and Charles. Fine, do not worry. So we take, yeah, we this is the, you know, Ramona liberal elite over here. <laughs> exactly. If we take the failure end, um, I suppose... Hey, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. That's really great. Yeah. So we've just heard some of the arguments from those on the, the success yeah, sure. end. Um, uh, ultimately, you know, when you're hearing some of those things, so, for example, vaccine scheme, the fact that the UK was able to act nimbly outside of what would have been the EU scheme, which we wouldn't have had to join, but I think there was an expectation you would have done. Is that something where you think Brexit has been a success? Actually, that's an interesting question. I went back and worked in the Department of Health in the pandemic from, for eight months, from March. Uh, I think it gave us possibly 10 days that we might not have had. Otherwise, it's completely oversold. Um, and I, I don't actually think that... I don't. I, we wouldn't have had to join. I think it's a slightly spurious yeah. argument. I'm perfectly happy to take it as a thing. Um, I, I'm not sure it was. I mean, I, I was really interested that Theresa mentioned, you know, clinical trials directive. I mean, I think one of the things we've begun to discover is that the red tape we were all worried about from Brussels is already replicated in London. We are terrible at red tape. The clin the ab the, the, removing ourselves from the clinical trials directive has made no difference to the fact that clinical trials in Britain have plummeted over the last five years. We have a major problem with clinical trials. That has a, nothing to do with the EU, whatever. It's got a lot to do with the fact that we have a very moribund system. We have a British Medical Association trade union lobby which refuses to release data. We have a hostility of the public sector to private sector involvement from pharmaceutical companies. And I'm afraid to say that kind of, you know, it sounds great. Yes, we have got out of the clinical trials director, but it's made absolutely no damn difference because the problems are at home. So I think we have to also address our own bureaucracy. The EU is increasing red tape. I mean, it, I felt it was somewhat hypocritical for Jacob Rees-Mogg to keep complaining about the size of the civil service when we literally had to hire more people in order to deal with the compliance that was inevitably going to come from EU, not just unwinding everything, but the new compliance regimes. The point I was trying to make earlier is that, of course, everybody wants to be sovereign. We all want democratic control. We no longer live in a world. We live in an integrated world. It is, it is, it is a bit too much of a purist argument. We are subject to a great many rules which we're going to have to remain subject to. Yes, we, we now have the freedom to decide that we're going to be subject to them. Um, but that does not seem to me to, to be quite sufficient to make the case for success. Um, I suppose then on the flip side, um, now if we go to you, when we're talking about Brexit powers, I mean... Is it the case that we're having to be more accountable, perhaps opening our eyes to some of the long-term British problems because we can no longer blame Brussels for most things? I think that that, that is true, yeah. Um, and that's all about taking back control and ministers being responsible. Um, I think one of the points I would make is that um, I think there was a re real sort of missed opportunity um, in January 2020, you know, after the election, you know, getting in with the majority of 80, um, it's a real missed opportunity at that point, at the point where we left the EU, to really actually think about you know, what we're we going to do with these powers, where do we want to be as a country. Uh, we have you know, a five-year parliament to actually implement that. And you know, a lot of that missed opportunity is down to Brexit, down, down to COVID, sorry. 
So there's a reason for that. But um, I think looking back, you know, had we at that moment taken stock properly, actually worked out what's Britain's position in the world, how do you want the UK to look, what sort of long-term decisions do we need for a bright future, um, we'd be in a better position thinking about it then than thinking about it now. Can I just ask a question, Matthew? You were CEO of Vote Leave, is that right? Yeah. You're saying you hadn't thought about it until January 2020? You didn't have a plan? You hadn't thought through what the powers were that we need and how we'd use them? Are you actually saying that? That in 2016, you had not got a plan? I'm not saying that. Because that's certainly the impression I have. That's certainly the impression I have, Matthew, that the Leave argument was incredibly powerful and it was brilliantly executed, but there was no plan beneath it. And that is where we are now. We are still sitting here now debating what is the plan. I say two points on that. Which I think you've just admitted. I didn't admit it at all. (laughs) At all. Um, So so what was the plan? I think, well... (laughs) (laughs) I know some journalists in the lobby who still have their computer monitors stacked up with a publication called Change or Go, which is basically how Britain could look outside the EU published just before um, the 2015 general election. So um, there was actually... That was the plan, OK. So people wrote about plans. One of the key points to make, though, if we remember, thinking back to the... um, referendum period, I seem to remember the Treasury um, forbade civil servants from actually looking into how Britain would look outside the EU, to actually stop civil servants from actually looking at the different scenarios. I think, that, was well, I think that is correct. I think that's yeah. probably right, yeah. Can I, can but, I, but I mean, you might, you, you could have done. <laughs> I mean, wh- where I, I definitely agree with Camilla is, is that, you know, the, the machinery of government in the UK, I mean, it may have been liberated from from um, from Brussels, but you know we, there is a long way to go before we genuinely deliver the regulatory reform that Brexit offers the freedom to do. I I gave you a list of, as I say, around 2,000 that are on the way out or or shortly to be repealed. But it is possible to do things considerably better than is the case with the EU legislation we inherited. I was an MEP for six years. I was deeply involved in the legislative process, and it is it, it very often produces suboptimal and um, bureaucratic results. So we can and should do better, and it is crucial for our economic success that we do, that whilst maintaining our high standards, we deliver them in a way which is more modern, more flexible, and more targeted to our domestic circumstances. We have started down that road but uh, we need a great deal more determination from the government if we're really going to reap the full benefits of regulatory reform as a result of Brexit. I suppose one thing I wonder, John, is um, I know you're going to talk about some of the Brexit opportunities we could be taking that we're not, but is one of the problems just that lots of your colleagues in your party in Parliament don't seem very keen on them? I don't think that's right at all. And I think um, a lot of colleagues are very keen on the Brexit opportunities. I think we've encountered a lot of institutional resistance and I think we are now in a position where the uh, Northern Ireland protocol has been used as an excuse by officials and lawyers to try and impede us and very clearly we've encountered a lot of legal difficulties on trying to control illegal migrants across the channel where we're still pending yet another case in in our own court uh, as the legality of what Parliament very clearly wishes to do. So I I think um, the opportunities are there to be seized. If you take the taxation front, uh, I want to see the threshold for small business on VAT raised from the 85,000 limit, which 
the EU placed on it. I'd, I'd like it to go up to a quarter of a million so that people can expand their business before they have to go through all that extra bureaucracy and legal requirement and before they have to put 20% on all their prices. We need more capacity and more supply. One of the quickest ways of getting it is to allow our small businesses to expand. Every MP can tell you about small businesses in their area that get to around 80, 85,000 turnover and then close down for a month or two or go slow on extra jobs because they don't want to go through all that hassle. Uh, I think we should abolish the VAT on green products given the net zero imperative which the government and the opposition have set uh, and that is still only a temporary suspension and I think it shows a, a lack of courage to get on and use the, the VAT freedoms we have. I think we can make more flexible use of our ability to impose or withhold tariffs, particularly withholding tariffs. I think where we are importing products that we can't make at home, there's not a lot of point in keeping a, a tariff on to make those things dearer for people uh, in the way that we had to when we were in the European Union. But I think the whole approach of um, quite a lot of officialdom and so-called independent bodies acting under government is to try and mirror, mimic and hold on to the panoply of European laws and, and European methods of working when we need something much faster and more entrepreneurial uh, that can work with the grain of people who are going to make things and grow things in our own country. And I think the whole of Europe should be extremely worried that the 10 largest companies by market capitalization in quoted stock markets in the world are all American and that seven of them are the digital giants and that Europe and the UK doesn't have a single digital giant company and we've missed out on the AI revolution so far. This is going to be dramatically revolutionary technology which is extremely exciting and can provide all kinds of new futures for institutions and individuals and companies. But it's three mighty American corporations fighting it out to get the better ideas and to see what they can offer to the world. And we should want to change our system so that we can help promote companies and people through to that scale and make a direct contribution to the most vibrant modern technology there is. Charles, and I'm going to go to... Oh, I don't want to ruin the clap. I think you're about to get some applause. Uh, <laughs> um, just so I can engage the room, how many people have a question? Okay, got quite a few. Good to know. Um, Charles, just, um, I suppose... In your role, you look at a lot about what the EU think and what they're saying. I mean, how do you think the EU view Brexit? They're bored of it, aren't we all? Uh, they're fed up with it. They, they think the British... not They regret Brexit, but they also regret something else. They regret the way the British government behaved over several years in handling Brexit. The, the Theresa May years, the Boris Johnson years, the fact that twice in recent years the government has put forward legislation, first the Single Market Bill, then the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which would have allowed the British government to tear up an international treaty. That sort of thing went on very badly in Brussels. But the, there is something we haven't talked about at all, which is the, the strategic consequences of Brexit. We talk, only talked about the economics. Now, let's not forget that Vladimir Putin was in favour of Brexit. I'm not saying that Russian interference affected the result. I don't think it did. But you have to ask him why was he in favour. He was in favour for a very clear reason. He understood it would weaken the West. By taking the UK away from its close uh, European allies, it would weaken the EU, weaken the West. And he was right. Let's not also forget that in October 2019, when Boris Johnson first became Prime Minister, 
he came up with a plan for a structured cooperation with the EU on foreign and defence policy. It's in the political declaration, the draft political declaration produced by Boris Johnson's government. Later, David Frost persuaded him, or somebody persuaded Boris, to, to put that aside. So we have absolutely no structural links on foreign and defence policy at all with the EU today. So on sanctions policy, which somebody mentioned, somebody said it's good we have our own sanctions policy. Well, it's, it's not good. It's, it's, it, takes, it delays things. It delays the EU. It delays the UK. The fact that we, we've worked quite well with the EU on sanctions through informal ad hoc methods, it would be much better to be part of the same machine for making sanctions. And my last point on this is talk to people not just in, in the EU who regret Brexit. Everybody except for the French regrets Brexit. <laughs> the, 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 every single member state in the European institution thinks that the EU is weaker without the British and is worse off without the British. The French see opportunities. Some of them, not all of them do, but some of them see opportunities. But think about the Americans. The people who are most upset about Brexit are the Americans. Because we were a very good agent of the Americans in the European Union, steering the European Union to be Atlanticist, free trade orientated, sensible on foreign policy, and they've lost it. They've lost their best friends in Europe. And the American foreign policy establishment is very ex extremely angry about Brexit. I mean, we're, getting, we're coming to questions very, very soon, I promise. I suppose I'll just give um, the success camp a chance to respond to Charles there. Do you want to, John? Well, I, I think you should also ask what the Republican Party thinks, because they, they think Brexit is a very important manifestation of an independent, free country, and one that they wish to have closer ties and links with. Trump says that. The other Republicans don't. No, the other Republicans do. I think you'll find DeSantis and, and uh, the others are similar to Trump on that. Uh, and you, you, know, you always want to marginalize and, and make out that it is not a respectable position to want to have our independent country. Uh, tell an American uh, that in order to trade with Europe, they would have to accept European laws. They, they'd laugh at you. They'd think you were mad. Only the EU thinks that we somehow should obey their laws to trade with them. And you, with your three-block view of the world, China block, an America block, and an EU block, um, as you rightly say, they all wish to export their standards and, and laws as much as they can. We, tra we trade with China and we trade with America without having to adopt their laws, so why can't we trade with the e EU without having to adopt their laws as well? Particularly when a big chunk of our trade is not exports, it's imports, when we are the customer and they should treat the customer rather better. going to go to Camilla. Can I just make a point on this? Because I spend a lot of time in America and, um, and with Republicans. Um, Condoleezza Rice was in London recently, and she was saying that when she was um, Secretary of State, she would ring the Foreign Secretary of Britain every Sunday morning. And Jack Straw was actually in the audience, and they knew each other really well. It was obvious that they knew each other really well, and she really valued that conversation. That conversation no longer happens, because we are no longer the back door to Europe, and we are no longer seen as relevant. And it is not every Republican not every Republican is Donald Trump, and not every Republican is Ron Santos. She, she is a staunch Republican, and she very, very much regrets the fact that the UK is just losing its relevance in the world. And this is something, I mean, I just, in terms of somebody, I happen to have three kids. Um, I really do worry for their future. I would like them to have a future in this country where they can build a successful career in this country. And the number of kids who are now going to study in the US and other places worries me. And what I'm trying to explain, I think I, what I worries me about this conversation, John, and about your insistence on sowing division here, we are all actually in one country. You're attacking the establishment. The conservative, you know, you, the conservatives have been in power. They've been the establishment since 
Brexit. So I, I think it's on, on, I think it's unhelpful to sow division. I think what we, we all want to move forward, but I actually think it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the people who we all wanted to help. It's dangerous for the people who already have low-paid jobs. And we happen to be very lucky that across Europe and America, we have very high rates of employment. This is nothing to do with Brexit. This is a feature of demographics and a whole lot of other. We happen to be very lucky at the moment. But there are companies that are just quietly beginning not to hire more people here. They're starting to hire elsewhere. They have to get a foothold in Europe. They have to get a foothold in other places. There are a lot of American companies that I can honestly tell you are beginning to, they're not necessarily laying people off yet, but they're not hiring. And when we talk about the Edinburgh reforms, we talk about financial services. If you're in the city of London right now, what are you seeing? You're seeing far fewer IPOs because the, the shift is coming to New York. It's never, it was never going to be Frankfurt. Frankfurt was never going to win this war. It was always going to be London versus New York. And that is one of the other things that Brexit is slowly doing, is is slowly putting the squeeze on the city. And the Edinburgh reforms are good, but they are not going to be a balance to that. So when you, talk, when you disparage this three-block view of the world, and I'm not talking for Charles here, but I, I don't want there to be a three-block world, but that is the world in which we live. And how are we going to make our living in that world is really critical. And pretending that Brexit is not a problem is rather like Republicans, I'm afraid, pretending that Donald Trump won the election. It is not helpful. We need to have a much more honest conversation in the Conservative Party about the reality. And until we do, we are actually going to hurt some of the very people we ought to be helping. I think you should tell the British people that you still disagree with them and you are trying to upend... No, I, no, 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 I'm not telling you that. Members of my family, I am unusually well, wrong. I know plenty of people, perhaps unlike you, John, who voted on both sides of this argument. I am not a polarizer. I know plenty of people in my own family who voted to leave. I don't disparage anybody who voted to leave. They voted to leave for all sorts of perfectly sensible reasons. But they were, they were brought into a campaign which was about a whole bunch of things, which was anti-elite, anti-establishment, by some people who, I put it to you, didn't have a plan, and that is where we are today. We had a perfectly good plan, and we then encountered a huge amount of resistance from a very large number of politicians and senior people in our country who did not wish to accept the result of the vote. Senior politicians, right. it was a Conservative government. We are now going to... time you get an economic forecast wrong, you just move it forward and say, well, it will come right in due course. I think it's time to find uh, some new opinions in the room uh, through the audience. Um, well, we'll see how we go. Um, just, but Matt, I'm coming next, but question before we go to the audience. Do you think... The UK has all the Brexit powers it currently needs because lots of people talk about Brexit Part Two, ECHR, and leaving it. And I want to: do, do you think we currently have everything we need? It's just about taking advantage of it. I think it's far more we can do with the powers we've currently got. Yes. Okay. Right. Let's start taking some questions. Okay. I got a lesson from Frank Luntz earlier about uh, where to take questions from, and he said, "Never the front row." <laughs> <laughs> and he said. Yes. Sorry, guys. Yes. And he said never by the door because they might try and make a quick getaway ask, asking the question. But I'm going to ignore him, so don't worry. Okay, so let's have the man holding all the papers. I'm going to take a couple at a time. I'm going to write them down 
And we're also going to use our memories. But therefore, we won't answer them straight away, and then we'll divvy them up. And then we'll go for we'll go for the first uh, man by the door, the first door man uh, in the pink. Oh, they're all pink. The lanyards. Yes, the slightly green jacket. Yeah, exactly. You got you. Yeah, you, you. And then we'll go for the man in the kilt, and then we'll take it from there. Okay, so let's start. Thank you, Katie. I'll be carrying papers to every uh, conference I go to from now on. Next time a spectator, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Teresa, you hinted that we still have small work to do in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Do you feel it's time that we actually realigned our trading border with the actual border of the country in Northern Ireland and created a soft border um, and allowed Southern Ireland to deal and the EU to deal with that as they feel fit because just at this moment in time it seems that's what they're doing anyway with a false border on the Irish Sea. Great, so big question, Teresa. Now let's go to um, the man kilt. Then we'll go to the door. Yeah, we're relaxed about the order. Alistair Campbell, as you probably gather, I represent Scotland, one of the few who has traditionally dressed. Um, <laughs> Alex Salmon famously said, amongst other things, let my people be free in his campaign. I wondered about the logic of that when they were dead set in rejoining the European Union. But we haven't actually left Europe. I must emphasize this, and I, I, I emphasize it no more than the result of the Ryder Cup. Europe, including Northern Ireland, Britain, and the rest of Europe, one against the United States of Europe. The fact that we don't want to be a United States of Europe is evident in a, a sportsmanship, and I think that's where um, the real heart of the matter lies. Um, I voted to join a common market, as many people did, never to be a United States of Europe, and that's where it fundamentally failed. Okay, uh, and then let's go for this question. Thank you. Um, I actually was a Conservative that voted to remain, but now I'm very happy that we're out of the EU. I think, listening to the arguments today, there's one thing that we really haven't addressed, and that's the lack of management ability in both the public sector. So we have policymakers, not uh, organisers, in the which is public sector, and it's the policy makers that dictate things, not the managers delivering things. And we have the same, unfortunately, in our political parties. So I'd say Rishi Sunak's the first manager we've actually had in for quite some time. Boris was a brilliant, brilliant campaigner, but he wasn't a manager, nor was Theresa May. So, and quite frankly, nor was David Cameron. So I think what we should be looking for is a lot better management, and then some of the things that both Camilla and John have said will come about. But without decent management, we will never get there. And that is a real problem for us. Thank you. Great. Let's start with Teresa on the Northern Ireland question, if that's okay. Um, and then I'll go to the panel. Um, Camilla, it'd be interesting, along with John, to get your points on the third question, and then he ports on the right of a very great proposal. Yeah, I, I do think it's essential that... Um, the UK and the EU continue to seek to resolve the situation in Northern Ireland. It's intolerable that uh, we don't yet have an agreement with Northern Ireland, with uh, the European Union, which has allowed the resumption of devolved power-sharing government under the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And uh, it is... You know, there are grave concerns felt by the Democratic Unionist Party because of the frictions on trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. 
and they have they are being ameliorated by the Windsor framework. That is, there is no doubt about that in terms of food, medicines, and the whole retail sector. But uh, uh, the rest of the economy, and in matters such as such as veterinary medicines, and above all, the problem that single market rules still will apply in Northern Ireland without Northern Ireland having a say over them. So this is unfinished business. Um, I fully recognise the Windsor framework was a big step forward, um, but I, I certainly believe that we should continue to strive for, as you say, a functioning but invisible border along the north-south axis rather than east-west, because that is the way to ensure that um, we resolve this problem once and for all. And it, it, it should be possible to do that, um, to move to a... Of an invisible but compliant north-south border. And um, that question we had, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, I don't know your name, <laughs> but the man the door was, uh, almost seemed to unite John and Camilla in saying um, the points that you both made could perhaps be achieved if there was better management ability. I mean, what do you think, Camilla? Well, I'd love to know where you work. Are you happy to tell us? Uh, I, I'm retired now. Okay. I'm a, a county councillor in Staffordshire, an incredibly well-run uh, authority, mm. uh, low tax, <laughs> and I live right. in Newcastle and another low tax conservative, mm. uh, but I have yeah. been a management consultant and a senior civil servant, Ooh, and okay. I do know... You're very well management. qualified, you're very well qualified to make the point, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so I've also been a management consultant, you know, with, with perhaps less, uh, less success. Um, and I think a lot. I think local government is a really interesting example, by the way, of some really, really well-run places. Not in all cases. Um, I totally agree, but I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think we really are possibly, but but also, I'm not sure you can just blame the policymakers for all of it. I think I think you know we have various management cultures, but I think the other the other question you asked is 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 about politicians themselves. Yes. I've always found it slightly peculiar, I suppose. Having, come, having worked in various different sectors myself, that I think politics is almost the only place now where there is no talent management and there is no promotion based on management. There's a famous story, do you remember, when Tony Blair appointed one of his cabinet and somebody never got the call because the post-it note with his name on it had fallen off the whiteboard and they, he never got the call. I mean, you know, the, the way that cabinets are decided has very, very little to do with merit. It certainly has nothing to do with whether the person is interested in the post. I mean, Theresa knows what she's not going to say. But, I mean, the truth is it's, it's, got, it's, all about, it's all about patronage, it's all about loyalty, it's all about which brings the... And I mean, I do really think there is an opportunity to improve that. I, so I would agree with that. Um, Matt, John, do you Well, let I'm me agree. Let hopes. me agree with Camilla. I, I do think we could do much better at um, human resources, as it's called in the private sector, if, if we applied it to the top echelons of government, both ministers and senior civil servants. Uh, and I do think um, it would be very good uh, if we did not have uh, all-out or lots-out reshuffles from time to time when lots of people stood by their phones with no idea whether they were likely to be promoted, demoted, or ignored, um, and sometimes don't even get the call to say that actually nothing's happening to them. And this should be done through mentoring and training and teaching and working <laughs> with your staff uh, so that ministers have expectations of whether they're doing well, what they need to do to improve, and you make changes when you need to, uh, rather than having these general, general reshuffles. There is a productivity problem in the UK economy at the moment, and it's unfortunate and particularly acute 
and it is, of course, in the public sector. And the recent ONS figures take the period of the three years, 2020, 2021, 2022, and they show that over those three years, there was a, a huge fall in public sector productivity in COVID year, which was understandable because a lot of things were simply cancelled. But the recovery was fairly half-hearted in 2021 and petered out in 2022. So that overall, public sector productivity over the three years is down 7.5%. This is absolutely massive. Put a number on it. I mean, my approximate number would be about 30 billion of extra cost or, or missing output. Um, and one somehow has got to work with the, with the officials and the civil service ministers have got to take an interest in it, at least to get us back to 2019 levels of productivity. And there would be a huge improvement in the public finances and in the overall performance of the economy. Now, at this point, I might just take a, one more round of questions, just so we can, because I think if we take one more, we'll go to Matthew and Charles first um, on those ones to make sure they're brought in, um, and then we should be right on time. Okay, so is there anyone further back? I feel I've been quite biased towards the front. No, no one's feeling very chatty. Okay, let's go for the lady in the glasses. Hi, everyone. My name is Anushka Sharma. I'm from the University of Leicester and also from Nort. Um, I want us to think more boldly and boldly go where we may not have gone before, and that is a pun. Um, we've recently seen a sample return from NASA from an asteroid. India have recently landed on the moon. This is a very terrestrial-based conversation when we're <laughs> everyone else around the world, China, India, America included, is looking off Earth. What are the opportunities? We're world leading when it comes to that area. We could be really bold. What are the ideas? And how can we get more science and tech literate MPs into, onto the benches? Right, okay, terrestrial opportunities. I didn't expect that. I'm just going, okay, let's, let's go. Um, the man standing up. There we go. Uh, hi, uh, Ben Willard from Sheffield. Uh, I voted to leave because, in my view, the EU had failed and it didn't have the democratic checks and balances to justify its growth in power. And so it was the, the moral argument that I really brought into. If you could go again and advise the Remain campaign, what would the moral argument, not financial, but what would the moral argument for staying in the EU be? Okay, interesting. So Camilla and Charles, what would the moral argument for be staying in the EU? Um, then, because we're just going to get as many questions as possible, there's now, let's go, let's go for, there's one man at the very back. But before you go with the microphone, let's get this man by the door. We're going to reward all people standing near the door. <laughs> Don't tell Frank. That's very kind of you. have been standing here for some time. Uh, about an hour ago, I listened to Grant Chaps, and it was fascinating listening to what's happening in the defence industry. And what I was really pleased about was, although he's only just got into the job, he was making the point that we're the leaders in Europe. I think we should repeat that, that we're the leaders in Europe, both in technical terms, in ability, in manpower, in finance, in every aspect in Europe. We're the leaders. And what bothers me is that we're forever running ourselves down in this country. We've got to look for all the positives. And I would blame the media for this, because if there are two stories, they grab the worst one first that they can get hold of. Why, why don't we support everything that we do where we do it well? Um, right. And then let's get just a final question from the man at the very back. I think it's, yeah, perfect. You've got the microphone, Fab. And then if we don't have time for your questions, please just try and stop people from leaving. Um, <laughs> just go for it. Sorry. What are the Every man for themselves. Uh, one of the previous questions talked about going from the financial to the moral. I want to go back to the financial, if, if that's okay. Um, financial services, uh, 
12% of the UK's output, uh, over 100 billion in, in tax revenue per year. Um, it, it feels like a lot of jobs in that industry, a lot of talent has been essentially forcibly relocated from London to the EU as a result of Brexit. And uh, a lot billions of assets as well have been forcibly removed from the UK and made to go to the EU in order to retain passporting rights, etc. Has Brexit failed financial services? Okay, that's a really good question. Has Brexit failed financial services? So we have terrestrial opportunities. What the moral case um, that would have been made in the Remain campaign for staying in for the EU? Um, should we speak up more? Talk, you know, uh, stop putting Britain down, and you know, perhaps some journalists. I don't know if you know any journalists. Um, <laughs> should think about that. And then has uh, the EU, has Brexit failed the financial services industry? So I'm actually going to let the panelists. I think clearly on the Remain moral argument, um, that's one which I'm not expecting. Matthew to answer, um, but let's start. <laughs> let's start with Matthew. You can pick because this will be our, almost our closing comments too, and then we'll go to Charles, and then we'll go to the rest of the panel. I'm going to start on the um, the talking Britain down point because I think there is a, um, a point to be made that we are in danger of talking Britain down. Um, I can recommend though a column by one of my fellow panelists who wrote a very good column talk, talking Britain up and saying that Britain is actually a great place to be at the moment. It's actually one of Camilla's columns recently, which I read which is a very good positive case for the UK. And I think some of the discussion in the past uh, hour has been slightly as if we sort of Brexit was all about cutting, cutting Britain off from the rest of the world. Whereas I think we can actually point to things in the past few years where whether it's um, Ukraine and how we've led on the um, uh, leadership there, you know, supplying weapons, you know, et cetera, sanctions, uh, we've led there. Um, in 2021, I thought it was a great year in the sense of the leadership over the G7 and COP26. So again, Brexit isn't about you know, not doing international deals, not cooperating with other people. I touched briefly at the beginning on um, free trade. We haven't talked enough about that in the past hour. You know, the deals we've had with Australia and New Zealand and um, CPTPP, you know, that's something which will be huge. These are the fastest growing countries in the world. Um, if the US joins that trade deal, which is one of the initial architects of, it would cover, I think, about 45% of global GDP for a trade deal. So that'd be another sort of huge advantage from Brexit. So um, I think there's a lot to be optimistic about. Brilliant. Um, Charles, uh, coming to you now, uh, perhaps you can say what you think the moral case is, but obviously very welcome to touch on the other points too. Yeah, well, on, on, on space, um, great. Britain is still in the European Space Agency, which is great, and it's a very useful and effective organisation. I'm glad we didn't pull out of that. Um, on CPTPP, um, there, there are 11 countries in the CPTPP other than Britain. The EU has trade agreements with nine of them, so if we'd stayed in the EU, we would have had trade agreements with most of the CPTP anyway. I'm not against the CPTPP, it's a good idea, but the, the economic impact of joining that is infinitesimal, as, as, as the government's own figures show. Uh, on the moral case for, for, for Remain, I mean, the EU is a force for good in the world. It's about democracy and human rights and freedom and standing up for the rule of law and international relations. Britain is, is, believes in those things very strongly. When Britain was in the EU, it, it was able to exert leadership in many respects. And as Matthew rightly says, even when we're outside the EU, we can exert some leadership on Europe as well. But it's just a lot easier if you're inside around the table all the time. The EU is a force for good in the world. Britain should, should have stayed in to shape, to shape it to be more useful. It's, it's done well on Ukraine, but you know, it could have done well on Ukraine if it was in the EU as well. The, 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 I'm very worried about what's happening in China and Russia and 
possibly America too, and we Europeans have to stand together and help each other. We, now we're going to do, that, do it outside. We're not going to reverse Brexit, not in my lifetime. We'd have to do it from the outside, but it'd be a bit easier on the inside. My last comment is back to, to just one word on your Northern Ireland. I think Rishi Sunak deserves a lot of credit for doing the, North, the Windsor framework. He had to compromise, the EU compromised too. It was, it's removed not all the problems, as, as, as Theresa said, but quite a lot of the problems. It's not going to be improved on. I'm sorry, it really isn't. There's, there's no possible way around getting a better deal, despite the DUP wanting a better deal. You can't get a better deal than that in terms of if, if Northern Ireland stays in the single market. It won't be improved on. I'm afraid people in Northern Ireland will have to live with the Windsor framework in the long run. But we haven't talked about the ECHR very much today. It's only got one mention. There's a very good piece in The Current Spectator by Jonathan Sumption on the case for leaving the ECHR, which is a thoughtful and intelligent stating of the case. But what often gets forgotten is that if you leave the ECHR, you lose, you lose the Good Friday Agreement. The, the Good Friday Agreement is predicated on Britain being part of the ECHR, as, it, as, are, as are the justice and affairs provisions of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. So if you leave the ECHR, you have all sorts of problems which haven't, you know, most people in favour of leaving the ECHR haven't even thought of. Um, and uh, f f final point, back to Northern Ireland. Um, I, I hope personally that Britain does follow many EU rules in the future from outside the EU. It has the freedom to choose what it wants and what it doesn't want. I agree. We w I, I think probably the EU's not got good rules on AI. I'm quite happy that Britain can make its own rules on AI. But many rules I hope we do follow because it's, that's what businesses want. It's what big business and small businesses want. It makes life easier for them. And, and, and it makes the whole life easier for the Northern Irish as well because... If the more, the more divergence there is between the UK and the EU, the harder it is to not have quite bad checks on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. So one reason I'm in favour of of, often, though not always following EU rules, is to, to make the life easier for the Northern Irish. I'll stop there. Um, John, I'll come to you now. And perhaps, I don't know if you have thoughts on that financial services question. No, I, I don't have a comment on financial services for obvious reasons. Um, if we want more space travel from Britain, and that could be very exciting and lots of jobs, we need more billionaires. That's obviously the magic ingredient we're missing. And so all that I've been saying about building bigger companies and more success stories with lower taxes would indeed lead us closer to space, uh, as the American billionaires are showing us. I, I would like to just briefly concentrate on the moral argument for the EU. I remember I was often given by the uh, Vote Leave campaign the task of addressing business audiences. It was usually me against three. I thought they were pretty fair odds. Um, <laughs> and and I, would, I would start my talk by setting out the, the huge scale of ambition of the federal project, the moves to ever closer union, development of many features of the United States of Europe. And I would never get very far before my interlocutors would complain that I was misleading the the public in the audience and that it was nothing like that and it was a trade arrangement and how wrong I was. And I used to be able to say, well, that's very odd because so far all I've done is quote the treaties. Uh, so are you telling me that the treaties are a pack of lies because I think you'll find on the continent there is a very strong moral vision. And one of the sadnesses for me of our Brexit debate was that most of the British proponents of us staying in not only wouldn't make the case for the United States of Europe, but spent their time denying that Europe wished to have more control over our army and navy and have joint defense operations and a common foreign policy that went on to majority voting and wanted a much bigger budget and would start borrowing money in its own name and would have much bigger programs and wanted to take over our energy markets. They said none of this was true. But, of course, it is all completely true. And the moral case there for There is it, no European army, John. There won't be either. The moral case for it is that 
if you're in tune with the spirit of it on the continent, they want more integration because they feel stronger together and they believe in mutual obligations to each other and it will require much bigger transfer payments and so forth, which is just beginning to emerge. Why are you ashamed of this? It's a perfectly good moral vision. I just don't happen to think it's one that I and the British people want. Uh, but if I were Belgium or Holland or whatever, I might well think it was a very good idea. And let's be honest about it. Thank you. Uh, definitely winning the award for most rounds of applause. Um, <laughs> Camilla, let's go to you, and then we'll go to Theresa, and then uh, we'll all be free. Um, well, better be brief, because you're all desperate to get to the next session. Um, on the moral case, yes, I mean... I think John does slightly um, rewrite history, but I'm sure there were parts of the Remain, Remain campaign that were desperate enough to, to argue anything. But I mean, many of us for a long time were extremely worried about the United States of Europe. We used to be on the same side of this argument, if you recall. Um, we were worried about QMV, which, by the way, was driven by the British Foreign Office, which believed, if you remember, in larger, not deeper. The British Foreign Office was very much part of wanting to enlarge Europe, believing that we would, if we went wider, we wouldn't go deeper. Well, that turned out not to be quite the case. But the reality, I think we just have to connect with the reality. Germany did not want to write the checks, never wanted to write the checks for the common foreign policy, for all the other things you've talked about. The reality is it didn't write those checks. It doesn't have it. We don't, there isn't a common army at all. And so I think maybe some of us were too worried about all of that. Um, but on the other side, I became far, far more worried, I'm afraid, as I've said, about the economic consequences for our children of divorcing ourselves from a market of 500 million people on our doorstep. And it's not an exciting argument, and it's going to take years and years and years of slow change of the boiling frogs as we sit here. But the moral argument that I would have made would have been that we needed to secure the future for our children, not by, by staying in something that was perfect, but by recognizing the reality of the world as it was and doing our best to remain in something that was seriously imperfect, but is better than the alternative. You'll all remember that during the referendum, we were told that Brexit was going to lead to an economic apocalypse, and it hasn't. As I said in my opening remarks, you know, not only have we concluded the most uh, extensive free trade agreement with the EU that it's ever signed, but our exports to the EU have gone up. Um, and I think what we should really take away from today is the comment from the guy by the door that... We spend too much time in this country talking ourselves down. So I just want to leave you with just a couple of the examples the Chancellor used a few weeks ago, that we've created more billion-dollar unicorn companies than France and Germany combined. The London-Oxford-Cambridge triangle has more tech businesses than anywhere in the world outside San Francisco and New York. We produce around half the world's large civil aircraft wings and its biggest aero engines and half its Formula One cars. We are a world-beating economy. We will continue to do business with Europe every day. Um, we do not have to accept their laws and accept their political institutions to work in partnership with Europe, not just on trade, but on the, the crucial matters of security. And, you know, I think... It's just incredible that Europe and the United Kingdom and the Western world have stayed so united 
in the face of Russian U uh, aggression in Ukraine. You know, the, the, that removal of the UK from those political structures has completely failed to stop this um, uniform and unified shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder approach on Ukraine, which is one further demonstration that uh, Brexit was not about a little Englander mentality. We are still an outward-looking, highly successful economy that wants to work with its neighbours. We just want the opportunity to make our own decisions on our own laws in our own parliament. And with that, I'd like to thank our fantastic panel today. And thank you all for making it here. And sorry again about the room. Thank okay. you. Thank you.